The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Right, could be a busy old show. We've got Mandy Drury, of course, uh, leading the way, and myself, Steve Sedgwick, and easier headlines. So they did it again. The Federal Reserve raised by another 75 basis points, but stopping short of offering forward guidance. Fed Chair Jerome Powell admits the chance of achieving that goal are uh, getting smaller. We continue to think that there's a path to that. We know that the path has, has clearly narrowed really based on events that are outside of our control, and it may narrow further. Uh, U.S. equities rallying as investors worry about out-of-control inflation, or those worries lessen somewhat, and an economic downturn uh, easing. But uh, Powell says he does not think the U.S. is in a recession. Elsewhere, Facebook parent Meta Uh, Posting its first quarterly revenue decline ever as the CEO Mark Zuckerberg warned of a broad impact on digital ad spend. And Airbus cutting its annual jet delivery forecasters, supply chain problems and labour shortages weighing on the plane maker. The CEO Guillaume Faurie telling CNBC that the outlook is uncertain. We're facing a complex operating environment um, and uh, indeed we have a lot of difficulties with the supply chain to ramp up at the pace um, we had uh, defined previously. Welcome everybody and thanks so much for joining us today and it is a big day as Steve just mentioned. Yes, it is a lot about the Fed but not completely about the Fed but let's get the Fed over and done with shall we? The Federal Reserve unanimously agreed to increase rates by 75 basis points. Of course 75 was perhaps the new 25 but maybe not for too much longer. They did do this however for the second consecutive month the Chair Jerome Powell signalling that the pace of hikes now could slow as officials assess just how that tighter policy is affecting the economy. Well, interest rates are now at their highest level since December 2018. The Fed's decision coming ahead of today's second quarter GDP print. Of course, concerns are growing over a possible recession. does become a little bit about semantics, though, because a lot of people still feel that we are already in recession. Well, Powell said that the size of the next hike is going to be data dependent. As it relates to September, I said that another unusually large uh, increase could be appropriate, but that's not a decision we're making now. It's one that we'll make based on the data we see, um, and we're going to be making decisions meeting by meeting. We think it's, uh, we think it's time to, to, to just go to a meeting by meeting basis and, and not provide you know, the kind of clear guidance that we had provided on the, on the way to neutral. Of course, the, uh, the truth of the matter is some people's lives are in recession. Other people's lives are actually seeing uh, a bull market at the moment. And, and therein lies the quandary, isn't it, as well? It is a very mixed picture out there as well. It is neither one nor t'other. It is not binary. What I thought was fascinating is actually, if you look to my right here, big market moves to the upside yesterday. But I don't know how much of it actually was about the Federal Reserve and how much of it 
actually was about Google and Microsoft. Now, I say that because, of course, Mandy and I were talking this time yesterday about Google and Microsoft shares rallying after hours, despite uh, some concerns about the numbers. But actually, what the long and the short of it was, the market was primed for a rally in Microsoft and Google and actually looked beyond near-term concerns and looked actually at the solid revenue, which they're still generating, regardless of economic issues going forward. And I think that's what the market was doing yesterday. It was looking for something from the Federal Reserve, which said it could continue the rally. And I say continue the rally rather than start the rally, because as we've been saying, it's been a strong month for risk on, for equities, for the NASDAQ especially. And the NASDAQ was already up, uh, when I was looking yesterday afternoon, spending far too much time looking at these indices, up the best part of 3%, 2.5% to 3% was the oscillation pre-Fed as well. And then just topped up that rally thereafter as well. So I think the market was primed in terms of positioning, in terms of what it wanted to hear from the Fed uh, for a continuation of that rally. Whether it continues from here remains to be seen. But of course, now the Fed isn't offering as much forward guidance and just falling back on a mantra we've heard many, many times from central banks over the years, and, and it probably should be as well. They will be dependent on the incoming data. Talking of incoming data, and we can switch over to the Treasuries now if we like. The incoming data today is actually very interesting. You've got an advanced estimate of second quarter um, GDP, plus you've got some uh, personal consumption spending data tomorrow as well. So very important data continues as well. But again, the market looked quite prime. Now we look at the dollar crosses. Oh, I should just briefly say that you do have the inversion. I'll move on, don't worry. The, the inversion uh, from the 2 to the 10 is there now basically with this idea that uh, we front-loaded now and that the pace of This is interesting. Not that rate hikes won't happen going forward, but the pace of rate hikes has peaked. And I think it is that comment kind of what the market is clinging on to and hoping for uh, why we saw that rally. So anyway, on the crosses as well, you'll notice that the euro, the yen and the pound are all off their recent lows. Uh, very interesting. Parity hasn't happened just yet, although I did see an 80 cents call yesterday, which I thought was very interesting. Dollar yen, again, there are some very interesting calls. And we speak to Salman Ahmed from uh, Fidelity yesterday about their tactical short on the yen. Of course, the recent high had a 138 handle. And the pound is off its, what was it, 118 low? I think there are thereabouts, now trading 122. As people think that the pace of rate hikes from the Fed has slowed. That's what they're clinging on to, I believe. Asian indices look like this. Is the risk on continuing? Well, yes and no. It's not particularly... Um, effusive, is it, this morning? Uh, the Hang Seng down three tenths of 1%, Shanghai Composite up six tenths of 1%. Very interesting story in the FT I was looking at today about the amount of money that uh, the PBOC in China is looking at propping up uh, the beleaguered property market. That's another issue that still needs to be uh, worked through, isn't it? Kospi, uh, South Korea, up seven tenths of 1%. Mandy, you came back for the third day. Thank goodness for that. Well, I'm actually just thinking about it. I mean, like, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see tomorrow. Well, when anyway. you listen to Paul Donovan in a minute, he'll understand where you're coming from about having <laughs> to talk to me for three days in a row. Really, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting what you're talking about with the Hang Seng. I mean, it just can't get out of its own way, right? I mean, it's still in a bear market. Um, but anyway, let's move back to the Fed, shall we? I'm not going to get carried away and go back to my wheelhouse, which is Asian markets. Well, as um, Steve was saying just a moment ago, it does look as if the Fed has opened up optionality and after those front-loaded rate hikes, and they did acknowledge that the Fed's attempt to make a soft landing is getting more tricky. We think that there's a path for us to be able to bring inflation down while sustaining a strong labor market. As I mentioned, along with, in all likelihood, some, some softening in labor market conditions. So that is, that's what we're trying to achieve, and we, we continue to think that there's a path to that. We know that the path has, has clearly narrowed 
really based on events that are outside of our control. And it may narrow further. Well, look, even a chief economist at UBS Global Wealth Management can answer this question. We'll get to Paul Donovan, an old friend. Uh, Paul, um, is the Fed doing it right at the moment? Is it getting it right with its communication? Have they made the right moves? Good morning to you, my friend. Good morning. Uh, well, no, I think the June meeting, there were two policy errors by the Fed. The first was that they, they didn't just say, we're not going to give forward guidance. They said, don't believe a word we say, because they tore up. 10 weeks of explicit forward guidance. And secondly, they seem to shift to put more emphasis on CPI, which the Fed for years has said is not really a great inflation indicator. And it's a very volatile indicator. And so those two policy errors have added unnecessary uh, volatility, unnecessary risk into the markets. Because what they basically said is you can't trust what we say and you've got to start looking at this really weird volatile indicator that is not a great reflection of necessarily longer term pricing pressures. The fact of raising rates, yes, I think that's fine. Um, the, the 75 basis point moves doesn't make much of a difference whether you do 50 or 75 to inflation because it's, it's not going to have a full impact for another year or so. But I think a tightening now is appropriate as we go forwards. I think the Fed is going to have to moderate the pace of tightening. That, I think, is clear because the risks to growth are increasing. I think particularly towards the end of the third quarter, the start of the fourth quarter, we're going to have some quite profound risks to growth. And the structural changes of the economy means the Fed, I think, needs to be very agile. I'm not convinced the Powell Fed has that agility. Um, very interesting about the forward guidance. And I understand what you're saying there, because I, I've heard this a lot, that they're given this forward guidance uh, and then, then they basically get prepped the market for this, strip that away. And I, I totally agree with you that that volatility will come. And yet the market reaction yesterday was stunningly benign. It, it kind of heard what it wanted to hear or certainly made itself believe it heard what it wanted to hear. So oscillation still to come in both directions. Yeah. Yes, I think so, because the data flow is going to be very mixed. I mean, remember, data quality has deteriorated in recent years, so we're getting more revisions to data. The revisions are larger. We saw that um, after the June meeting when the Michigan consumer inflation expectations were suddenly revised down. The Fed had been saying, oh, no, we're worried about inflation expectations, and then suddenly they're revised down. So um, we're going to get, I think, a lot of these swings based on the high-frequency data. And the problem is, I think, because... Uh, you know, faith in what the Fed says has perhaps declined a little bit. Um, you know, the, the, the spin around the data is going to be perhaps a little bit less convincing. I'm not sure whether it's very useful to navel gaze, but I'm going to do it anyway, Paul. I mean, if it wasn't for the fact that we've got inflation around 9% in the US, would the Fed be cutting rates today, given all the data we've got so far to show about the, uh, the slowdown in the economic environment? I don't think it would necessarily be cutting. Um, we've got a situation where I think on most measures, uh, I mean, even if inflation was at a more normal rate, you would consider the, uh, uh, the interest rate to be below a neutral rate. We have, at least on the unemployment measure, an extraordinarily strong labour market. Um, and remember, unemployment is 0.1% above its all-time low. I mean, this is, this is not a, a normal labour market in that sense. Um, you've got a great deal of job security. Now, the real peculiarity, and this is what, of course, economists are wrestling with, on the one hand, we've got a very strong labour market with um, the, the very low unemployment. But on the other hand, because of the inflation, but also because of weaker pay bargaining power, real wage growth is negative, and actually the most negative it's ever been, if you look at real weekly earnings. 
So on the one hand, I've got a strong labor market, another a weak labor market. I don't think that's necessarily an environment to, to rush to give credit stimulus to the economy. It is an environment, I think, to be uh, a little bit cautious. Ultimately, though, I think if inflation comes down uh, over the course of this year, that is what will achieve the soft landing if they're able to get that. The problem for the Fed is that the inflation rate needs to come down before consumers run out of savings to bolster their consumption. I mean, the labour market seems incredibly uneven, though, doesn't it? I mean, we hear about some sectors like, you know, the healthcare sector and the hospitality sector that just can't get enough workers. And you've got the tech sector, which is starting to cut or put hiring freezes on. Paul, you talk about getting inflation down. Will the, will the Fed keep on hiking until it gets inflation back to that magical 2%? I think the Fed will not hike until inflation is 2%. It will stop before then. Um, we've got to remember, though, that the labour market isn't actually the problem here. Um, labour costs are not driving inflation. We've got a falling wage share of GDP. We've got negative real wage growth. Labour costs, that's to say uh, wages adjusted for employment levels and, uh, and productivity, are actually very benign. What's happening here is profit margins, which are driven by pricing power, which are driven by uh, a strong level of consumer demand. So that's been the, the driver of inflation away from the commodity prices, which you know, Powell and the Fed can do very little about. So the, the, the dilemma here, I think, is how do you get the level of demand down to such a point that pricing power is weakened, profit margins are squeezed a bit, and that's what's going to be bringing down the inflation story in the second half of this year. Now, the good news is we are seeing this in action so if you look at durable goods inflation in the United States, uh, because demand for durable goods is slowing, you know, how many television sets does a, a US family actually need to own? Uh, in that environment, what we have now witnessed is the most dramatic disinflation impulse for durable goods we have had in over 70 years of history. Um, you know, the durable goods price inflation has gone from over 18% to just over 8%. Still high inflation, but very dramatic disinflation in the space of four months. Uh, Paul, got to go, but I can answer your question. The answer is a TV in every room if they're watching Scorebox Europe. Thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, Paul Donovan, uh, Chief Economist. We didn't even get to talk about his dissing of stagflation and uh, all those kind of things. I, was I thought stagflation was going to be this year's buzzword, but suddenly it's just disappeared from our lexicon. I don't know. But Paul would argue it should have disappeared, I think. No, I don't think it should have at all. No? We've moved on to something else. Oh, I don't know what, what we've have we moved, moved on, on to, to now. Optionality is my new one. Oh, very Fed, good. Yeah, optionality. Well, there you go. It's better Keeping than the, the cornucopia open. of onomatopoeia that I got uh, stuck on yesterday oh, with you. We've been practicing sitting at home, cornucopia of onomatopoeia. Might You just say it a lot of times really fast. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Airbus cut its annual jet delivery forecast as supply chain concerns and labour shortages. Way on the plane maker, the group did reaffirm, though, its full-year financial targets, despite posting a 31% decline in its profits in the second quarter. Charlotte now joins us with more. Give us all the juicy details on what we heard from Airbus and where we go from here, Charlotte. Yes, Mandy. Well, look, some of the numbers were actually uh, better than expected. It was the case for the adjusted EBIT uh, for the second quarter, 1.4 billion euros and on free cash flow. But really what caught the attention is how they changed those delivery targets for this year to 700 instead of 720 and also changed the pace of the ramp up of production of the single airplane, the A320 uh, Neo family, which is the A320 family, which is the best seller plane, the single line one. And uh, the target still to reach 70 
75 of those by 2025. They produce currently about 50, but the ramp up of the way they're going to do it is going to be a little bit slower. Now they hope to reach 65 only in 2024 instead of summer 23. So about a six month delay. And they say this is all down to supply chain issues. They're struggling to get some parts. They're struggling in particular as well to get some engines from the engine manufacturer. So I had a chance to catch up with the CEO of Airbus, Guillaume Fourier, and asked him where the problems were on the supply chain and what was the picture like for the next six months. We're facing a complex operating environment um, and uh, indeed we have a lot of difficulties with the supply chain to ramp up at the pace um, we had uh, defined previously. So we are facing the facts and trying to best assess the ability of the supply chain to deliver on the ramp up plans. We've come to the conclusion that uh, the target we had to reach rate 65 by uh, summer 2023 had to be pushed back to early 24. So we're going to reach the rate 65 around six months later than planned. We keep our objectives to um, go up to rate 75 uh, in 2025. And this is supported by a very strong demand for our products. So it's really a, a supply constrained uh, ramp up. And the consequences for 2022 is that we believe uh, we be around 700 planes uh, this year, where the previous uh, guidance was for around 720. So we have reduced by 20 planes for this year. So why is that? Because you didn't change that target in the last quarter. Has the situation deteriorated since then? Or is it some of the suppliers that told you, look, we will not be able to cope with that pace? We are now um, end of July, so we have a much better visibility um, on the situation. Uh, we have discussed with our suppliers, including uh, very recently, and in particular with the engine makers when we were at Farnborough last week. So we have a much better understanding of uh, the environment, of the capability of the supply chain uh, to deliver now, tomorrow, until the end of the year. And that's just because we have actually a better visibility and we take the decision to update now. You said a bit earlier, you have about 26 gliders, I mean, uh, planes that don't have engines yet. How do you see the situation involved? Is it going to improve? Well, we think we are at the peak of um, missing engines uh, for 2022, at least based on what um, our engine suppliers are telling us and what they're demonstrating right now. We think we're going to reduce uh, that number of uh, gliders moving forward. And our objective is uh, to have zero gliders or very close to zero gliders by the end of this year when we will be transitioning to uh, 2023. So despite changing the delivery target for this year to 700, 720, they have maintained their free cash flow and EBIT adjusted uh, target for this year. And so interestingly, they are talking to increase some of the production of their wide body uh, planes uh, because they said the recovery post COVID is a little bit faster, a little bit earlier than expected. So while they can't really produce all the planes that are so much in demand for the single eye, they said actually the wide body are also very much in demand and they're looking at potentially uh, ramping up the production on those planes as well. Uh, part of that conversation was sort of about potential energy shortages in the winter and Guillaume Fourry said that they are looking at solutions to potentially see some of those shortages in the winter and adapt their production. They say at the moment they hope that these solutions will help them not impact their production and they are putting solutions in place. Guys.
All right, thank you very much indeed. We're going to take a very short break. Safe to say, Nestle following on from Unilever numbers we've already had this week. Organic sales growth of 7 to 8%. We'll have a good, have a quick look at these after a short break. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Right, uh, let's take a very quick look at Nestle numbers. I, I gave you the headline figure. Um, we saw a very strong quarter uh, increase in organic um, sales growth for um, Unilever yesterday, and we're seeing exactly the same from uh, Nestle today. Uh, 7 to 8% sales growth, they're now expecting underlying trading operating profit of 17% in 2022. Uh, sales have come in at 45.6 billion Swissy, as opposed to the previous figure, uh, well, expected of 44.9. Uh, underlying profit margin 16.9% versus a poll of 16.7. So good sales, uh, plus underlining a decent profit margin as well, just acting as a, a bit of a bulwark, a support uh, for Nestle, who shares, well, let's just take a very quick look at these ones. So far, year-to-date, down around about 8%, that cost price inflation affecting them. But if you look over a five-year period, uh, they've had a, a solid run-up uh, from the low of, uh, in about 2018, of 74.6. Quite a well-rated company as well. It trades on uh, a price-to-earnings ratio, which is a bit of a premium uh, to the likes of Unilever at 23.5 times. Yeah, and it's it's really important to put Nestle and Unilever in the same basket when we well, basket when we talk about um, this issue that we mentioned just a couple of days ago when Unilever's uh, profits came out, because these two companies are definitely vulnerable to the. The, the substitution that a lot of consumers are already starting to do where they seek out cheaper products, for example, you know, the, the supermarket brand yeah. products. Well, I mean, I love... Uh, Magnum ice creams yesterday, I believe. Magnum ice creams, yes. I can go for a cheaper option. Trade down you know? to the Audi-owned mag- uh, version. I don't know what it's like, but I'm sure it's delicious. Audi products are absolutely fabulous. Are we allowed to say that? Probably not. But anyway, we do have we do. Audi in Australia, and I actually frequent Audi. I'm probably not allowed to say that, but 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 there you go. Well, There's it's a, a nice fact. balance to Karen, who normally hangs out in the Harrods food hall. So, you know, <laughs> it's a good balance there, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, we find our equilibrium. You're probably somewhere in the middle, you know, between oh, no, no, Audi, no, I'm, Harrods, I'm, I'm and very I don't much know, not. Tesco. I'm, I'm, I don't know what's in the middle there. Well, well I, I, Mrs. Sedgwick handles uh, the husbandry in the house, of course, and and, and quite frankly, she, she, there is a wide oscillation in, in her purchases from different places so but it's safe to say there is a there is a balance I, I try to get her to one part of the the, the grocery market she, she t- tends to gravitate towards another I, I don't believe that for a second I, I'm sure that you know it's like here's here's your list Steve off you go good hubby but anyway um, look I like Kit Kats as much as the rest of them from Nestle but there are other, other cheaper products out there and this is the thing we're already starting to see product substitution go on well, we're also seeing product shrinkage as well which is a uh, which, which I always, I've always loved ever since I, I used to speak to the uh, CEO of Cadbury's about 15 years ago as well um, uh, and he always used to say yeah well we're making the bars smaller because they'll be healthier and less calorific and like 
Okay, well, that, if that suits you, that's fine. But, but the fact of the matter is, they make them smaller, so they can make a greater profit margin on them as you, well. You know, you know, you get those packets of chips, and like it's all air, and it's like a little bit of a shuffle, oh, a crinkle no, yeah. down the bottom. Yeah. Like, o is there only seventy-eight calories now for a pack of crisps, exactly, rather <laughs> yeah. than actually the previous hundred and thirty-five. That's because, as you say, it's, it's full of air. It is. Yep. Yeah. There's no calories in air. I, I love all these S words. You know, you, you like me, love all the sort of alliteration, shrinkflation, stagflation. What else yes. have we got in there? Oh, I don't know. Sedgwickflation? Sedgwick? Oh, Sedgwickflation. But what exactly is that? I think that's about a bloated ego. <laughs> I was actually thinking that in my head, but didn't want to say it. Let's Makes move a on. for you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uncharacteristically discreet. <laughs> AB InBev has posted an underlying profit of $1.47 billion for the second quarter. Total volumes rising by 3.4%, revenue jumping more than 11%. While the world's largest brewer said it expects earnings to grow in line with its medium-term outlook. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.